God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's take our Bibles and open Holy Scripture together, brothers and sisters, in the prophecy of Jonah. The Lord willing, we will conclude this series today, the series that was started some months ago together. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 3, and we'll read the whole chapter. Page 983 of the Pew Bibles. And after we've read from God's Word, we'll sing in response from Psalm 33, stanzas 3 and 4. Jonah 3, beginning at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, 
Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This morning I'm going to proclaim to you the word of the Lord as we read it from Jonah 3. And in particular, I'd like to focus our attention on the verse 10 of that chapter, which we could again read together, Jonah 3, verse 10. Where our text reads as follows, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I'd like to also read with you from one of our confessions, the Canons of Dort, this morning. Canons of Dort, chapter 5, which is on the perseverance of the saints, or the preservation of the saints, depending on whose perspective you're speaking from, man's or God's. We'll read from chapter 5, article 3, which I hope to then, of course, deal with at some point in the sermon this morning. Page 582 of your book of praise. God preserves his own. After it speaks of remaining or daily sins of weakness, because of these remnants of indwelling sin, and also because of the temptations of the world and of Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in that grace if left to their own strength. But God is faithful, who mercifully confirms them in the grace once conferred upon them, and powerfully preserves them in that grace to the end. So far, then, our confession. After the preaching of the word, we may respond together, singing from Psalm 86, stanzas 1 and 2.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in this world is to know of constant change. The weather and the seasons change. The days are starting, of course, to get a bit longer. Getting closer to home, you and I change every day. We grow older. Ideally, we grow wiser. We also change our minds daily. In some cases, the change is quite trivial. I'll have a cup of coffee with my cake. Actually, change that. I'll just have a glass of water with it. Other times, our change of mind has a bigger impact. Deciding to move to a different town or city or country to leave one employer for another. And then there is the spiritual dimension of change in your mind, what we've labeled as repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's deciding that a, a certain thought or behavior of yours is sinful and then resolving to abandon that in favor of a holy way of thinking and acting. Scripture, in the original languages, uses multiple words for repentance. One Hebrew word has the idea of turning from evil to good. Another Hebrew word expresses the idea of relenting or regretting. Well, you need to know that both of those words are used here in our text. You have two repentances. First, to describe the repentance of the Ninevites. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. That's very good. We saw that last time as we dealt with the earlier part of chapter 3. Nineveh was heading in such a horrid direction, and so it is excellent that they turned around, repented of their evil deeds in sackcloth and ashes. But as I said, the other word for repentance shows up as well. God relented of the disaster. The King James Version says, God repented of the evil. And that raises the question, does God ever repent? Does the eternal creator change his mind and his steps, direct his steps differently as this passage might suggest? Now this morning then we are, in a, are going to consider whether God ever changes his mind. Does God change and what does the answer to this mean for you? So I preach to you God's word in this way. God responds to Nineveh's repentance with compassion. We'll see two things. First, the questions surrounding God's response. Secondly, the certainty of God's response. So our text indeed raises for us a certain theological issue that has been the topic of debate over the centuries. 
God changed his mind and doesn't bring down the destruction that he threatened because Nineveh repented. This raises a question about God's so-called immutability, which is a big word that means God's changelessness. In science class, you learn about mutations of cells or organisms. They change. Well, if something is immutable, that means it doesn't change. The Bible testifies that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says that unlike human beings, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. That's that word there, actually, repentance. God's immutability, God's changelessness, is what it means for God to be God. We change physically, mentally, spiritually, but God never does. Indeed, he can't. He never becomes less or more truthful, merciful, just, loving, or good than he used to be. God is fundamentally different from us in this respect. Likewise, Malachi 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Israel, of Jacob, are not consumed. It's very fascinating. Israel is not consumed for their sins, which they continually, habitually committed, In other words, you could say Israel was immutable, persistent in sinning. But because God is unchanging, immutable in his faithfulness to his word of grace, they are not consumed. And then in the New Testament, for example, James calls him the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is what he always was, and he is what he always will be. But in our text, the Lord certainly does seem to change his mind. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. Doesn't this in some way, at some level, contradict those passages we just noted? We need to grapple with this matter because the thought is real among many who call themselves Christians that God, in certain respects, hasn't quite got the future figured out fully. It's the teaching, for example, of open theism. Open theism says that God doesn't really know the future. And so God takes risks, chances. Uh, He may be aware of all the possibilities that are out there, but his actions are in the end dependent upon our prayers, our decisions, and our actions. God can be influenced, persuaded by what we do. And he responds to what we do. And then our text, open theists will say, fits right into this, into the notion of 
undetermined future events. After all, God changed his mind. Now, if you carry this thought through, you are going to arrive at huge problems. If God is able to be changed on account of us or on account of events in history, then our faith no longer has any firm foundation. For then the biblical teaching that God is the rock, the refuge, the sustainer is up for grabs. Gone are our joy and comfort and assurance during those times of bitter suffering and affliction. Would you really want a God whose love may change? Would you want a God whose holiness may change? Whose power can change? If open theism is correct, then your God is no longer God. If God does not know the end from the beginning, then he's not going to know the middle as well. And so he doesn't know how to lead and to shepherd his own through it. How terribly devoid of comfort is such a thought, really? So yes, we need to grapple with what's happening in our passage. Maybe to bring it for a moment even closer to home. How do we view the matter of God answering our prayers, responding to our prayers, where things happen which didn't appear possible? What does the passage say about God changing? What does it say about God's sovereignty? It's only after grappling with this that we can come to the comfort and the certainty that our text offers. So how can the God of whom the Bible says is not like human beings who can change, how can he do a 180 in his attitude toward people? We need to reflect on the way in which God speaks in his word. God is infinite in his majesty and he is unsearchable in his ways. And yet in his word, God accommodates himself to our limited capacity for understanding. In the words of John Calvin, God speaks to us in baby talk. A parent bends down to talk to a young child, so God, as it were, stoops down to us so that we can grasp something of him, of his truths, of his teaching. A baby makes sounds and noises, and you imitate those noises and sounds to accommodate yourself to your child's view or way of looking at things. That's, in a sense, what God does to us in the Bible. So when the Bible talks about God and how he relates to his creatures, it often uses language that gives human characteristics and behavior to God. A clear example is found in the description of God's reaction to the immorality of mankind just before the flood. Genesis 6, verse 5 through 6 reads, The Lord saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The passage says that God saw, and yet God doesn't have eyes like man. He doesn't have eyelashes, eyelids like we do. The passage also says that he was grieved to the heart. But this is much different from man's grief. God speaks about himself in ways that we can understand. And so the same applies to when scripture speaks of God relenting or regretting or repenting. God is accommodating himself to the way that we look at things. From our perspective, it indeed looks like there's been a change in God. But really, neither God's plan nor God's will has changed. For what's happening is that God, in relenting, is not showing changeableness but rather his unfailing consistency and faithfulness. You see, the only way that we could actually really charge God with being changeable is if he treated the Ninevites post-repentance as he had threatened to treat them pre-repentance. For this would have exposed God as at one time displeased with unrepentance, and then at another displeased with repentance. God had threatened to destroy the violent, wicked, unrighteousness, uh, unrighteous and proud Nineveh. But a city sitting in sackcloth and ashes a city humbled and appealing for mercy, that Nineveh he had never threatened. And so it's that Nineveh, as it were, he didn't destroy. For he never said he would. God never changes in his character, his perfections. And so God never changes in doing what is right which in this case is treating his creatures according to their actions. The Lord isn't like us. We are time-bound creatures who are always changing, always responding to the words and actions of those with whom we interact. We are often fickle, very unreliable, and when we repent, we acknowledge that we were, what we were doing was wrong and we need to do something different. But God, he is eternal. He dwells outside of time. There is no change in him. He is who he is from beginning to end. There is no before or after, yesterday or tomorrow with God. There's only the eternal present, as it's been said. 
And God's unchangeableness means that he always does what is right and perfect. So of course he never has to change or repent in that sense. Otherwise, if he had to change, that would imply imperfection, inadequacy in God either before, which is why he had to change, or imperfection after he changed away from what perfection is. But it doesn't change in his being or his knowing, for he knows everything from everlasting to everlasting. And even more, he's also sovereign over everything in between. So God's actions are never simply reactions to unforeseen or unexpected events. Think of the cross. God knew before it came to pass that Christ would be crucified. When that happened, it made no change in his knowledge. He was no better informed than he was before. He was no more certain of the crucifixion after the event than he was before it because he had decreed that it should take place. Our actions, our words, our prayers don't shape him. His actions shape us because he is the unchanging God who has determined the course of history from beginning to end. So God was not taken by surprise, of course, when Nineveh repented. It's not as though he was nervously waiting to see how the Ninevites would respond to Jonah's message. He knew they would cry out because he had sovereignly ordained and planned that outcome from before the foundation of the world. If that were not the case, then salvation could not really belong to the Lord. So indeed, we can say that the Lord relents of the disaster he said he would do to the Ninevites precisely because he is consistent and faithful to himself. What he had from eternity decreed, he now pursues. Now to summarize then, God's relenting in our passage is both his sovereign decision and his promised, faithful, consistent response to change in behavior. Again, it's essential that we grow in this appreciation for the way in which language works in the Bible. For it helps us to understand a passage like Jonah 3, verse 10. And perhaps equally important, such an appreciation will also help you as you wrestle with the problems of suffering and affliction in your own life, but also in the lives of others. For you can wrestle with it indeed in prayer. You can express a confident trust in God because he won't change. You may always reassure yourself that God is on his throne and he's never taken by surprise. 
And you can also pray to God about matters like your sin, like your failures, your stubbornness, your pride. We can bring it all to God. I'm sorry, Heavenly Father. I repent of my sins. And you can know that your Father enthroned in heaven will respond. He is a God who relents. He responds to your repentance. It's exactly because he is unchanging that you are called to repent. God is unfailing in both his wrath against sin and his mercy towards faithful repentance. There is no change or variation in his opposition to wickedness. Hence, the daily call to you and to me to repent of our sins. There's no variation in his delight in receiving sinners who call on the name of the Lord and lay hold of heaven's mercy through faith. There is always mercy for you at the throne of God's unchanging grace. Of all of this, brothers and sisters, God assures us in his word. And so we need to turn in the second place to consider the certainty of God's response. Our text holds up for us a promise that God responds with compassion. God has this unchanging commitment to be a God of grace and justice, a God who judges evil, yet who is merciful and forgiving to those who turn from their evil way. For God is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's a glorious gospel. God's gracious compassion is for us to taste and to see. We have to savor the long suffering of our God that he desires all people to turn back to him like he wanted Nineveh's repentance. This truth about God is meant to bring the joy of salvation to the sinner claimed by Christ. But as we reflect on this, we need to be very careful. There are two errors that we need to steer clear of. In the first place, we may not interpret God's grace as something fickle, as if what he gives with his one hand, he then takes back with the other. He threatened destruction to Nineveh with the hand of justice, but with his grace in his other hand, he takes it all back as though his grace glosses over his warning. I wasn't really going to do it. Earthly thinking about God is in our blood. We can think of God's behavior, you might say, in the same terms as our own sinful human behavior. We examine God by our own human standards. For how often do we threaten punishment Do we warn and then relent, pull back because of laziness 
or a soft spot. That happens a lot and often in the name of grace. But let's not project that human approach onto God. God's grace is by no means a matter of laziness or a soft spot or an inconsistency because his grace does not cancel out his threats of destruction. Not a chance. It's quite the opposite. God's grace involves his condemnation being carried out. You have your Savior as the most visible proof of that. God's grace and God's forgiveness cannot possibly mean, I wasn't really serious with my threats. I take them all back. God's grace to us meant condemnation for Christ. God went through with his execution of punishment. The body and blood of our Savior on the cross are proof positive of God's grace. His grace points us to the cross and he says, I mean what I say, every last word of it. See your crucified Lord. If you want to see the unbreakable, unchangeable, rock-solid link between my threats my calls to repentance, my anger toward your sin and rebellion, and my compassion and my grace, then look no further than to the cross of Christ. I respond in my compassion, grace, and long-suffering to repentance because of Christ for his sake. Christ's death under God's heavy wrath provides us with the certainty of God's unchanging response to penitence. His grace spares us on account of his son. And so the Lord's message to us is thankfully not 40 days and Ancaster will be overturned. But that's not because God has a soft spot for us or because he's sentimental about us or because he's lazy, nor is it because we don't deserve such a message or because we're far better than the Ninevites. But God has dealt with us in great compassion by visiting his son with the wages of our sin. God repents or relents from judging our sins because his son suffered at the cross. Do you understand that? In Christ, you behold one who is both unchangeable and changeable. The unchangeable son of God took on changeable humanity. The eternal priest, the priest forever, thereby accomplished an eternal salvation, an eternal inheritance for his people. All those and only those who see themselves 
and their sins as judged and punished at the cross of Christ may now see and taste the compassion of God forever. Well, this is the kind of thing that our elders need to be busy passing on. These two intertwined truths, the threats, the punishments, the call to repentance, and the certainty that God responds in compassion to the repentant who cling to Christ for their forgiveness and turn from their sin. Neither you nor I go astray when we say that our God is a patient God. He is waiting. He is expecting to respond. He expects to respond in compassion to the repentant heart of his child. We need to teach this to our children as well in how we walk with them. How do you as a parent bring together the justice of God and the grace of God? How do you in your parenting bring together the warnings of God's punishment and the certainty of God's grace? We have to learn more and more not to play off grace against the demand. They're not opposed to each other. And so we can't emphasize the one over the other. We can't use the gospel of grace to cover over obedience as if we don't really need to take God all that seriously because after all, he's not going to enforce his law. He's simply all grace. Let that thought and that practice not live in our homes in how we raise up our children. For that will give to the next generation a very wrong idea about the gospel of grace. That will cheapen the message of how costly our salvation was. God means it when he says he wants repentance from his blood-bought children. And he promises to respond to repentant, humble hearts. But this takes us right into the second thought, second thing that we need to avoid as we reflect on God's response to penitence. It's this. God responds to repentance not for repentance's sake, but on account of his sovereignty. And with this, we essentially come full circle, do we not? God does not change or respond because of our repentance itself. You can get that impression from reading our text. Jonah admonishes Nineveh. Nineveh repents. God has compassion. God forgives. But God did this on account of God's sovereignty. For if we were to think that God responds merely, purely on account of our actions, on account of the tears that we shed when we cry out in sorrow for our sin before the Lord, then we've let works righteousness creep in through the back door 
as if our words and our actions are in some way, at some level, the determining factor in God forgiving us in Christ. We have to be so careful here. We cannot walk away from this sermon thinking to ourselves, God is compassionate, he's gracious, he forgives me because I repent. We can have this attitude, can we not? as if God is obligated to us simply on account of our penitence. Beloved, please understand me well. When we cry out, as we're supposed to, and God forgives, as he's promised, we can't conclude that he forgave because I first turned to him, not at all. Rather, this is how it is. God commands me to repent. And in response to his command, I have to declare, Father in heaven, I can't change. I can't repent without your grace, your power. I am so depraved that I can't of myself even turn my face to you to seek your forgiveness. I need your grace to supply me with the strength to repent. Otherwise, I'm never going to turn back to you. For isn't that the gospel of true grace? Our cry to the Lord is not one that says in the first place, I believe in you. The repentant sinner's cry is, I can't do anything but I at least trust that you can do everything. Grant me the repentant heart I need so that you would respond again out of sovereign grace and bless me with forgiveness. Beloved, let's not go forward thinking that it is by virtue of our words and our tears and our posture that God forgives. For God is eternal and God is sovereign. But, brothers and sisters, because of who God is, believers can be certain of God's forgiveness. As we read from Canons of Door, chapter 5, article 3, those who have been converted cannot remain standing in that grace of conversion if left to their own strength. But God is faithful who mercifully confirms them in the grace once conferred upon them and powerfully preserves them in that grace to the end. It is God's faithfulness to his promise to forgive mournful, sorrowful children. That's where your certainty lies. It is on your knees that you can then appeal to that faithfulness and be assured of response of forgiveness. He will respond to our baby talk, squeals, murmurings, and groanings, and envelop us with his compassion and love 
because he's faithful to himself and his promise. And so let us crucify the thought in our hearts that we can in some way push God into a corner where he has to do something for us because we've done something for him. When we are in the midst of our sin, which is regular, we may not presume that if we just say the right words with the right amount of conviction, well then God surely has to forgive me. God relents because of God and God's commitment to his covenant promises. Oh, beloved, don't ever doubt. He loves his children with an undying love. And he desires our heartfelt repentance as those who have been set free already. But be eternally thankful that his compassion and his forgiveness are not so much on account of us as they are on account of the one to whom we are united by faith, Christ. For even our, our repentance is imperfect. And so God's grace to us, his love and his faithfulness and his forgiveness are freely given because of the crucified and risen Christ and because of him alone. So let us together praise the Lord, our sovereign and gracious God, for he responds to repentant sinners with compassion. We don't need to question his actions. We can be certain of his unchanging response. Well, let's then celebrate and cherish God's unfailing compassion for repentant sinners. Amen.